Chapter Seven of Warren Hastings by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After some months, Hastings prepared to follow his wife to England. When it was announced that he was about to quit his office, the feeling of the society which he had so long governed manifested itself by many signs. Addresses poured in from Europeans and Asiatics, from civil functionaries, soldiers, and traders. On the day on which he delivered up the keys of office, a crowd of friends and admirers formed a lane to the quay where he embarked. Several barges escorted him far down the river, and some attached friends refused to quit him till the low coast of Bengal was fading from the view, until the pilot was leaving the ship. Of his voyage little is known, except that he amused himself with books and with his pen and that among the compositions by which he beguiled the tediousness of that long leisure was a pleasing imitation of Horace's Otium Divos Rogat. This little poem was inscribed to Mr. Shore, afterwards Lord Tainmouth, a man of whose integrity, humanity, and honour it is impossible to speak too highly, but who, like some other excellent members of the civil service, extended to the conduct of his friend Hastings an indulgence of which his own conduct never stood in need. The voyage was, for those times, very speedy. Hastings was little more than four months on the sea. In June 1785 he landed at Plymouth, posted to London, appeared at court, paid his respects in Leadenhall Street, and then retired with his wife to Cheltenham. He was greatly pleased with his reception. The king treated him with marked distinction, the Queen, who had already incurred much censure on account of the favour which, in spite of the ordinary severity of her virtue, she had shown to the elegant Marian, was not less gracious to Hastings. The directors received him in a solemn sitting, and their chairman read to him a vote of thanks which they had passed without one dissentient voice. "'I find myself,' said Hastings, in a letter written about a quarter of a year after his arrival in England, I find myself everywhere and universally treated with evidences, apparent even to my own observation, that I possess the good opinion of my country. The confident and exulting tone of his correspondence about this time is the more remarkable because he had already received ample notice of the attack which was in preparation. Within a week after he landed at Plymouth, Burke gave notice in the House of Commons of a motion seriously affecting a gentleman lately returned from India. The session, however, was then so far advanced that it was impossible to enter on so extensive and important a subject. Hastings, it is clear, was not sensible of the danger of his position. Indeed, that sagacity, that judgment, that readiness in devising expedients, which had distinguished him in the East, seemed now to have forsaken him. Not that his abilities were at all impaired, not that he was not still the same man who had triumphed over Francis and Nuncomar, who had made the Chief Justice and the Nabob Vizier his tools, who had deposed Cheta Singh and repelled Hyder Ali. But an oak, as Mr. Grattan finally said, should not be transplanted at fifty. A man who, having left England when a boy, returns to it after thirty or forty years passed in India, will find, be his talents what they may, that he has much both to learn and to unlearn before he can take a place among English statesmen. The working of a representative system, the war of parties, the arts of debate, 
the influence of the press are startling novelties to him surrounded on every side by new machines and new tactics he is as much bewildered as hannibal would have been at waterloo or themistocles at trafalgar his very acuteness deludes him his very vigour causes him to stumble the more correct his maxims when applied to the state of society to which he is accustomed the more certain they are to lead him astray this was strikingly the case with hastings in india he had a bad hand but he was master of the game and he won every stake in england he held excellent cards if he had known how to play them and it was chiefly by his own errors that he was brought to the verge of ruin of all his errors the most serious was perhaps the choice of a champion clive in similar circumstances had made a singularly happy selection he put himself into the hands of wedderburn afterwards lord loughborough one of the few great advocates who have also been great in the house of commons to the defence of clive therefore nothing was wanting neither learning nor knowledge of the world neither forensic acuteness nor that eloquence which charms political assemblies hastings entrusted his interests to a very different person a major in the bengal army named scott this gentleman had been sent over from india some time before as the agent of the governor-general it was rumoured that his services were rewarded with oriental munificence and we believe that he received much more than hastings could conveniently spare the major obtained a seat in parliament and was there regarded as the organ of his employer it was evidently impossible that a gentleman so situated could speak with the authority which belongs to an independent position nor had the agent of hastings the talents necessary for obtaining the ear of an assembly which accustomed to listen to great orators had naturally become fastidious he was always on his legs he was very tedious and he had only one topic the merits and wrongs of hastings everybody who knows the house of commons will easily guess what followed the major was soon considered as the greatest bore of his time his exertions were not confined to parliament there was hardly a day in which the newspapers did not contain some puff upon hastings signed asiaticus or bengalensis but known to be written by the indefatigable scott and hardly a month in which some bulky pamphlet on the same subject and from the same pen did not pass to the trunk-makers and the pastry-cooks as to this gentleman's capacity for conducting a delicate question through parliament our readers will want no evidence beyond that which they will find in letters preserved in these volumes we will give a single specimen of his temper and judgment he designated the greatest man then living as that reptile mr burke in spite however of this unfortunate choice the general aspect of affairs was favourable to hastings the king was on his side the company and its servants were zealous in his cause among public men he had many ardent friends such were lord mansfield who had outlived the vigour of his body but not that of his mind and lord lansdowne who though unconnected with any party retained the importance which belongs to great talents and knowledge the ministers were generally believed to be favourable to the late governor-general they owed their power to the clamour which had been raised against mr fox's east india bill 
The authors of that bill, when accused of invading vested rights, and of setting up powers unknown to the Constitution, had defended themselves by pointing to the crimes of Hastings, and by arguing that abuses so extraordinary justified extraordinary measures. Those who, by opposing that bill, had raised themselves to the head of affairs, would naturally be inclined to extenuate the evils which had been made the plea for administering so violent a remedy, and such, in fact, was their general disposition. The Lord Chancellor Thurlow, in particular, whose great place and force of intellect gave him a weight in the government inferior only to that of Mr. Pitt, espoused the cause of Hastings with indecorous violence. Mr. Pitt, though he had censured many parts of the Indian system, had studiously abstained from saying a word against the late chief of the Indian government. To Major Scott, indeed, the young minister had in private extolled Hastings as a great, a wonderful man, who had the highest claims on the government. There was only one objection to granting all that so eminent a servant of the public could ask, the resolution of censure still remained on the journals of the House of Commons. That resolution was, indeed, unjust, but till it was rescinded, could the minister advise the king to bestow any mark of approbation on the person censured? If Major Scott is to be trusted, Mr. Pitt declared that this was the only reason which prevented the advisers of the Crown from conferring a peerage on the late Governor-General. Mr. Dundas was the only important member of the administration who was deeply committed to a different view of the subject. He had moved the resolution which created the difficulty, but even from him little was to be apprehended. Since he had presided over the Committee on Eastern Affairs, great changes had taken place. He was surrounded by new allies, he had fixed his hopes on new objects, and whatever may have been his good qualities, and he had many, flattery itself never reckoned rigid consistency in the number. From the ministry, therefore, Hastings had every reason to expect support, and the ministry was very powerful. The opposition was loud and vehement against him, but the opposition, though formidable from the wealth and influence of some of its members, and from the admirable talents and eloquence of others, was outnumbered in Parliament and odious throughout the country. Nor, as far as we can judge, was the opposition generally desirous to engage in so serious an undertaking as the impeachment of an Indian governor. Such an impeachment must last for years, it must impose on the chiefs of the party an immense load of labour, yet it could scarcely in any manner affect the event of the great political game. The followers of the coalition were therefore more inclined to revile Hastings than to prosecute him, they lost no opportunity of coupling his name with the names of the most hateful tyrants of whom history makes mention. The wits of Brooks aimed their keenest sarcasms both at his public and his domestic life. Some fine diamonds, which he had presented, as it was rumoured, to the royal family, and a certain richly carved ivory bed, which the Queen had done him the honour to accept from him, were favourite subjects of ridicule. One lively poet proposed that the great acts of the fair Marian's present husband should be immortalized by the pencil of his predecessor, and that Imhoff should be employed to embellish the House of Commons with paintings of the bleeding Rohillas, of Nunkamar swinging, of Chaita Singh letting himself down to the Ganges. 
another in an exquisitely humorous parody of virgil's third eclogue propounded the question what that mineral could be of which the rays had power to make the most austere of princesses the friend of a wanton a third described with gay malevolence the gorgeous appearance of mrs hastings at st james the galaxy of jewels torn from indian begums which adorned her headdress her necklace gleaming with future votes and the depending questions that shone upon her ears satirical attacks of this description and perhaps a motion for a vote of censure would have satisfied the great body of the opposition but there were two men whose indignation was not to be so appeased philip francis and edmund burke francis had recently entered the house of commons and had already established a character there for industry and ability he laboured indeed under one most unfortunate defect want of fluency but he occasionally expressed himself with a dignity and energy worthy of the greatest orators before he had been many days in parliament he incurred the bitter dislike of pitt who constantly treated him with as much asperity as the laws of debate would allow neither lapse of years nor change of scene had mitigated the enmities which francis had brought back from the east after his usual fashion he mistook his malevolence for virtue nursed it as preachers tell us that we ought to nurse our good dispositions and paraded it on all occasions with pharisaical ostentation the zeal of burke was still fiercer but it was far purer men unable to understand the elevation of his mind have tried to find out some discreditable motive for the vehemence and pertinacity which he showed on this occasion but they have altogether failed the idle story that he had some private slight to revenge has long been given up even by the advocates of hastings mr glegg supposes that burke was actuated by party spirit that he retained a bitter remembrance of the fall of the coalition that he attributed that fall to the exertions of the east india interest and that he considered hastings as the head and representative of that interest this explanation seems to be sufficiently refuted by a reference to dates the hostility of burke to hastings commenced long before the coalition and lasted long after burke had become a strenuous supporter of those by whom the coalition had been defeated it began when burke and fox closely allied together were attacking the influence of the crown and calling for peace with the american republic it continued till burke alienated from fox and loaded with the favours of the crown died preaching a crusade against the french republic we surely cannot attribute to the events of seventeen eighty four an enmity which began in seventeen eighty one and which retained undiminished force long after persons far more deeply implicated than hastings in the events of seventeen eighty four had been cordially forgiven and why should we look for any other explanation of burke's conduct than that which we find on the surface the plain truth is that hastings had committed some great crimes and that the thought of those crimes made the blood of burke boil in his veins for burke was a man in whom compassion for suffering and hatred of injustice and tyranny were as strong as in las casas or clarkson and although in him as in las casas and in clarkson these noble feelings were alloyed with the infirmity which belongs to human nature 
he is like them entitled to this great praise that he devoted years of intense labour to the service of a people with whom he had neither blood nor language neither religion nor manners in common and from whom no requital no thanks no applause could be expected his knowledge of india was such as few even of those europeans who have passed many years in that country have attained and such as certainly was never attained by any public man who had not quitted europe he had studied the history the laws and the usages of the east with an industry such as is seldom found united to so much genius and so much sensibility others have perhaps been equally laborious and have collected an equal mass of materials but the manner in which burke brought his higher powers of intellect to work on statements of facts and on tables of figures was peculiar to himself in every part of those huge bales of indian information which repelled almost all other readers his mind at once philosophical and poetical found something to instruct or to delight his reason analyzed and digested those vast and shapeless masses his imagination animated and coloured them out of darkness and dullness and confusion he formed a multitude of ingenious theories and vivid pictures he had in the highest degree that noble faculty whereby man is able to live in the past and in the future in the distant and in the unreal india and its inhabitants were not to him as to most englishmen mere names and abstractions but a real country and a real people the burning sun the strange vegetation of the palm and the cocoa tree the rice-field the tank the huge trees older than the mogul empire under which the village crowds assemble the thatched roof of the peasant's hut the rich tracery of the mosque where the imam prays with his face to mecca the drums and banners and gaudy idols the devotees swinging in the air the graceful maiden with the pitcher on her head descending the steps to the riverside the black faces the long beards the yellow streaks of sect the turbans and the flowing robes the spears and the silver maces the elephants with their canopies of state the gorgeous palanquin of the prince and the close litter of the noble lady all these things were to him as the objects amidst which his own life had been passed as the objects which lay on the road between beaconsfield and st james street all india was present to the eye of his mind from the halls where suitors laid gold and perfumes at the feet of sovereigns to the wild moor where the gypsy camp was pitched from the bazaar humming like a beehive with the crowd of buyers and sellers to the jungle where the lonely courier shakes his bunch of iron rings to scare away the hyenas he had just as lively an idea of the insurrection at benares as of lord george gordon's riots and of the execution of nuncomar as of the execution of dr dodd oppression in bengal was to him the same thing as oppression in the streets of london he saw that hastings had been guilty of some most unjustifiable acts all that followed was natural and necessary in a mind like burke's his imagination and his passions once excited hurried him beyond the bounds of justice and good sense his reason powerful as it was became the slave of feelings which it should have controlled his indignation virtuous in its origin acquired too much of the character of personal aversion 
he could see no mitigating circumstance no redeeming merit his temper which though generous and affectionate had always been irritable had now been made almost savage by bodily infirmities and mental vexations conscious of great powers and great virtues he found himself in age and poverty a mark for the hatred of a perfidious court and a deluded people in parliament his eloquence was out of date a young generation which knew him not had filled the house whenever he rose to speak his voice was drowned by the unseemly interruption of lads who were in their cradles when his orations on the stamp act called forth the applause of the great earl of chatham these things had produced on his proud and sensitive spirit an effect at which we cannot wonder he could no longer discuss any question with calmness or make allowances for honest differences of opinion those who think that he was more violent and acrimonious in debates about india than on other occasions are ill-informed respecting the last years of his life in the discussions on the commercial treaty with the court of versailles on the regency on the french revolution he showed even more virulence than in conducting the impeachment indeed it may be remarked that the very persons who called him a mischievous maniac for condemning in burning words the rohilla war and the spoliation of the begums exalted him into a prophet as soon as he began to declaim with greater vehemence and not with greater reason against the taking of the bastille and the insults offered to marie antoinette to us he appears to have been neither a maniac in the former case nor a prophet in the latter but in both cases a great and good man led into extravagance by a sensibility which domineered over all his faculties it may be doubted whether the personal antipathy of francis or the nobler indignation of burke would have led their party to adopt extreme measures against hastings if his own conduct had been judicious he should have felt that great as his public services had been he was not faultless and should have been content to make his escape without aspiring to the honours of a triumph he and his agent took a different view they were impatient for the rewards which as they conceived were deferred only till burke's attack should be over they accordingly resolved to force on a decisive action with an enemy for whom if they had been wise they would have made a bridge of gold on the first day of the session of seventeen eighty six major scott reminded burke of the notice given in the preceding year and asked whether it was seriously intended to bring any charge against the late governor-general this challenge left no course open to the opposition except to come forward as accusers or to acknowledge themselves calumniators the administration of hastings had not been so blameless nor was the great party of fox and north so feeble that it could be prudent to venture on so bold a defiance the leaders of the opposition instantly returned the only answer which they could with honour return and the whole party was irrevocably pledged to a prosecution burke began his operations by applying for papers some of the documents for which he asked were refused by ministers who in the debate held language such as strongly confirmed the prevailing opinion that they intended to support hastings in april the charges were laid on the table they had been drawn by burke with great ability though in a form too much resembling that of a pamphlet hastings was furnished with a copy of the accusation 
and it was intimated to him that he might, if he thought fit, be heard in his own defence at the bar of the Commons. Here again Hastings was pursued by the same fatality which had attended him ever since the day when he set foot on English ground. It seemed to be decreed that this man, so politic and so successful in the East, should commit nothing but blunders in Europe. Any judicious adviser would have told him that the best thing which he could do would be to make an eloquent, forcible, and affecting oration at the bar of the House, but that, if he could not trust himself to speak, and found it necessary to read, he ought to be as concise as possible. Audiences accustomed to extemporaneous debating of the highest excellence are always impatient of long written compositions. Hastings, however, sat down as he would have done at the government house in Bengal, and prepared a paper of immense length. That paper, if recorded on the consultations of an Indian administration, would have been justly praised as a very able minute, but it was now out of place, it fell flat as the best written defence must have fallen flat on an assembly accustomed to the animated and strenuous conflicts of Pitt and Fox. The members, as soon as their curiosity about the face and demeanour of so eminent a stranger was satisfied, walked away to dinner, and left Hastings to tell his story till midnight to the clerks and the sergeant-at-arms. All preliminary steps having been duly taken, Burke, in the beginning of June, brought forward the charge relating to the Rohilla War. He acted discreetly in placing this accusation in the van, for Dundas had formally moved, and the House had adopted, a resolution condemning, in the most severe terms, the policy followed by Hastings with regard to Rohilkund. Dundas had little, or rather nothing, to say in defence of his own consistency, but he put a bold face on the matter, and opposed the motion. Among other things, he declared that though he still thought the Rohilla War unjustifiable, he considered the services which Hastings had subsequently rendered to the State as sufficient to atone even for so great an offence. Pitt did not speak, but voted with Dundas, and Hastings was absolved by a hundred and nineteen votes against sixty-seven. Hastings was now confident of victory. It seemed, indeed, that he had reason to be so. The Rohilla War was, of all his measures, that which his accusers might with greatest advantage assail. It had been condemned by the Court of Directors, it had been condemned by the House of Commons, it had been condemned by Mr. Dundas, who had since become the Chief Minister of the Crown for Indian Affairs. Yet Burke, having chosen this strong ground, had been completely defeated on it. That, having failed here, he should succeed on any point, was generally thought impossible. It was rumoured at the clubs and coffee-houses that one or perhaps two more charges would be brought forward, that if on those charges the sense of the House of Commons should be against impeachment, the opposition would let the matter drop, that Hastings would be immediately raised to the peerage, decorated with the Star of the Bath, sworn of the Privy Council, and invited to lend the assistance of his talents and experience to the India Board. Lord Thurlow, indeed, some months before, had spoken with contempt of the scruples which prevented Pitt from calling Hastings to the House of Lords, and had even said that if the Chancellor of the Exchequer was afraid of the Commons, there was nothing to prevent the Keeper of the Great Seal from taking the royal pleasure about a patent of peerage. The very title was chosen. Hastings was to be Lord Dalesford. 
for through all changes of scene and changes of fortune remained unchanged his attachment to the spot which had witnessed the greatness and the fall of his family and which had borne so great a part in the first dreams of his young ambition but in a very few days these fair prospects were overcast on the thirteenth of june mr fox brought forward with great ability and eloquence the charge respecting the treatment of cheta singh francis followed on the same side the friends of hastings were in high spirits when pitt rose with his usual abundance and felicity of language the minister gave his opinion on the case he maintained that the governor-general was justified in calling on the rajah of benares for pecuniary assistance and in imposing a fine when that assistance was contumaciously withheld he also thought that the conduct of the governor-general during the insurrection had been distinguished by ability and presence of mind he censured with great bitterness the conduct of francis both in india and in parliament as most dishonest and malignant the necessary inference from pitt's arguments seemed to be that hastings ought to be honourably acquitted and that both the friends and the opponents of the minister expected from him a declaration to that effect to the astonishment of all parties he concluded by saying that although he thought it right in hastings to fine cheta singh for contumacy yet the amount of the fine was too great for the occasion on this ground and on this ground alone did mr pitt applauding every other part of the conduct of hastings with regard to benares declared that he should vote in favour of mr fox's motion the house was thunderstruck and it might well be so for the wrong done to cheta singh even had it been as flagitious as fox and francis contended was a trifle when compared with the horrors which had been inflicted on royal kund but if mr pitt's view of the case of cheta singh were correct there was no ground for an impeachment or even a vote of censure if the offence of hastings was really no more than this that having a right to impose a mulct the amount of which mulct was not defined but was left to be settled by his discretion he had not for his own advantage but for that of the state demanded too much was this an offence which required a criminal proceeding of the highest solemnity a criminal proceeding to which during sixty years no public functionary had been subjected we can see we think in what way a man of sense and integrity might have been induced to take any course respecting hastings except the course which mr pitt took such a man might have thought a great example necessary for the preventing of injustice and for the vindicating the national honour and might on that ground have thought that the offences of hastings had been atoned for by great services and might on that ground have voted against the impeachment on both charges with great diffidence we give it as our opinion that the most correct course would on the whole have been to impeach on the rohilla charge and to acquit on the benares charge had the benares charge appeared to us in the same light in which it appeared to mr pitt we should without hesitation have voted for acquittal on that charge the one course which it is inconceivable that any man of a tenth part of mr pitt's abilities can have honestly taken was the course which he took he acquitted hastings on the rohilla charge he softened down the benares charge till it became no charge at all and then he pronounced that it contained matter for impeachment nor must it be forgotten that the principal reason assigned by the ministry for not impeaching hastings on account of the rohilla war was this 
that the delinquencies of the early part of his administration had been atoned for by the excellence of the later part. Was it not most extraordinary that men who had held this language could afterwards vote that the later part of his administration furnished matter for no less than twenty articles of impeachment? They first represented the conduct of Hastings in 1780 and 1781 as so highly meritorious that, like the works of supererogation in the Catholic theology, it ought to be efficacious for the cancelling of former offences, and they then prosecuted him for his conduct in 1780 and 1781. The general astonishment was the greater, because only twenty-four hours before, the members on whom the minister could depend had received the usual notes from the Treasury, begging them to be in their places and to vote against Mr. Fox's motion. It was asserted by Mr. Hastings that early on the morning of the very day on which the debate took place, Dundas called on Pitt, woke him, and was closeted with him for many hours. The result of this conference was a determination to give up the late Governor-General to the vengeance of the opposition. It was impossible even for the most powerful minister to carry all his followers with him in so strange a course. Several persons high in office, the Attorney-General Mr. Grenville and Lord Mulgrave, divided against Mr. Pitt. But the devoted adherents who stood by the head of the government without asking questions were sufficiently numerous to turn the scale. A hundred and nineteen members voted for Mr. Fox's motion, seventy-nine against it. Dundas silently followed Pitt. That good and great man, the late William Wilberforce, often related the events of this remarkable night. He described the amazement of the House, and the bitter reflections which were muttered against the Prime Minister by some of the habitual supporters of government. Pitt himself appeared to feel that his conduct required some explanation. He left the Treasury bench, sat for some time next to Mr. Wilberforce, and very earnestly declared that he had found it impossible as a man of conscience to stand any longer by Hastings. The business, he said, was too bad. Mr. Wilberforce, we are bound to add, fully believed that his friend was sincere, and that the suspicions to which this mysterious affair gave rise were altogether unfounded. Those suspicions, indeed, were such as it is painful to mention. The friends of Hastings, most of whom, it is to be observed, generally supported the administration, affirmed that the motive of Pitt and Dundas was jealousy. Hastings was personally a favourite with the King, he was the idol of the East India Company and of its servants. If he were absolved by the Commons, seated among the Lords, admitted to the Board of Control, closely allied with the strong-minded and imperious Thurlow, was it not almost certain that he would soon draw to himself the entire management of Eastern affairs? Was it not possible that he might become a formidable rival in the Cabinet? It had probably got abroad that very singular communications had taken place between Thurlow and Major Scott, and that if the First Lord of the Treasury was afraid to recommend Hastings for a peerage, the Chancellor was ready to take the responsibility of that step on himself. Of all ministers, Pitt was the least likely to submit with patience to such an encroachment on his functions. If the Commons impeached Hastings, all danger was at an end. The proceeding, however it might terminate, would probably last some years. In the meantime, the accused person would be excluded from honours and public employments, 
and could scarcely venture even to pay his duty at court such were the motives attributed by a great part of the public to the young minister whose ruling passion was generally believed to be avarice of power End of chapter seven